for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you from LARB headquarters in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. As usual, speaking today with a writer whose work you may have read in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Mississippi Review, Ziziva, Slice, Zoetrope, or surely elsewhere, Jim Gavin, who has a new book out, his debut, a short story collection called Middlemen. And its stories are set here, for the most part, in Southern California. And it's a Southern California I don't often read written about it jim tell me what in your southern california what is the importance of del taco right i didn't realize how important it was to me until i kind of started it started showing up in stories um and friends who would read the stories would point it out like oh there it is there's the del you know the characters have arrived at del taco (laughs) um and so i've kind of since then i've had to kind of trace my uh i guess uh relationship to it and basically i i ate it a ton as a kid it was Mm. it was cheap we got it three or four times a week (laughs) it was Mm. nearby you know you get a big bag of tacos and eat in front of the tv and that's kind of like was my family tableau and i so i definitely associate it with like comfort Mm. and um it has a the kind of drive-through aspect of it is very much a part of the culture in Southern California. You know, I can still picture being in the back of our shitty station wagon and yelling my order up to my father <laughs> and him like messing it up. And then everyone's screaming, you know, like, so I don't, you know, I definitely have those associations and, um, you know, I grew up in Southern California and the first time I left, I, I went up to Northern California for a few years, um, in my twenties. And I realized that when I came back down, the first thing I did was go to Del Taco because they don't, they don't really have it up there. So it, it definitely is kind of an associative, I associate with home. And then most people I know who are from Southern California are kind of loyal to it in a way that they aren't to say Taco Bell or any of the other terrible <laughs> fast food places. Does, does Del Taco count to you? Is it from your adult perspective, albeit an adult who has a Twitter handle, Jim at Del Taco, right. you know, so you can only be so, you can only get so much of a, of a perspective on this. But right. is Del Taco good? I mean, is the food better than than a Taco Bell? I've never had Del Taco, so I'm sort of speaking from ignorance here, but uh, I want to know. Um, it's really good after midnight, after you've had a few beers. Oh, um, that sort of thing. Um, I, it's terrible food. You, no. you know, it's a terrible thing to put in you on a regular basis. Um, so, uh, but I'm kind of, I don't know. I think of my parents who like, you know, smoked their whole lives and, and they knew it was terrible. I mean, my mom smoked through all three of her pregnancies and, you know, um, and I know I'm kind of, we do things to ourselves that aren't, uh, rationally know we shouldn't be doing. And, uh, fast food is, uh, is definitely in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, Taco Bell is a national chain, and it kind of relies on cheap, soulless gimmicks, whereas Del Taco has a more simple menu. Mm-hmm. And um, you can get fries and a burrito, and that is, um, that's a true blessing. Fries inside the burrito, not fries and, but fries in? Uh, you can put the fries oh, in the burrito yourself. yourself. I know I've, I've heard of people who do this. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of options. <laughs> There's a sense with Southern California that, even speaking just in terms of fast food chains, we have our own things. Like, don't go to Taco Bell. Go to Del Taco. You're in Southern California. Don't go to Burger King. Go to um, In-N-Out. You're in Southern California. What is, 
What is that? I, I I would say that every place in America has that, but I don't think they do. You know, I've I've only lived in Boston or in outside of California once, and it was for a year in Boston. And Dunkin' Donuts seemed to kind of fill that. Like, I it's terrible. It's got awful. But but I didn't grow up with it, so I um, you know, all the kind of locals, it was just like part of their routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I I'm I'm assuming other parts of the country. Um, I was in the South for the first time this summer, and I used to always hear people talk about the Waffle House, and I thought yes. that was like a generic term, <laughs> like a diner. Right. But no, Waffle House is an actual, and it sounded very much like it's the place you go after a few drinks, you know, um, just greasy and awful. Right. They all fill the same role to yeah, some extent. I think, I think so. I think, um, I don't know if you if you grew up with parents who <laughs> fed you healthy food, I don't know if you'd have the same associations, mm. but... Um, uh, yeah, I didn't. So it's it's just a part of part of the scene, I guess. Mm. These stories in Middlemen are, for the most part, Southern California stories. They all happen in most of them happen entirely in Southern California. One of them is partially in Northern California, but there's this sense that it they brought back to me because I am not from from Southern California, but I've, I've been here about ten years, and I get a sense of the natives here shall we say uh you know they they think of the elements of the area that that might be considered terrible elsewhere you know whether whether it's food or freeways or what have you and there's a certain embrace of terribleness i don't find anything here particularly terrible but tell me as a native of southern california is there that sort of i don't know if it's a masochistic pride but you want to you want to embrace the things that other people don't like about the area is that is that fair i think that's a really good way to put it actually um something like the freeways um i you know i used to have a job sales job where i was on the freeway like six or seven hours a day and um i mean it got to me after a while but um I don't mind it. I don't mind driving, you know, personally, it's, that's kind of where I, it's where I listen to music, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and when I lived in Boston for a year, I didn't have a car and I kind of realized I didn't listen to music for a year, you know, and it kind of is depressing when you can't do that. Um, so yeah, I, I never mind a drive and I don't, you know, I don't mind traffic per se. And it is, I don't know, it could maybe be some kind of consciously trying to be contrarian to like what are the kind of the cliches about what people complain about in Southern California. It's weird. I, I was talking about this with some the other day. I mean, like we associate LA with smog, like kind of like in a national, it's always the joke um, in movies and stuff. And, and I remember growing up, you know, there were smog alerts and like we couldn't have soccer practice because the sky was so brown and awful. And we're thinking 70s, 80s, yeah. 80s smog, maybe. Yeah. Mm. And um, I kind of realized that's kind of not, the case anymore like yeah. it's um there's it seems to be a lot more clear beautiful days here you know so then there's kind of like the hollywood stuff um you know i'm i'm a sucker for all that i like i i find <laughs> if i'm someplace and i see some uh you know character actor i i'm really excited by it like i don't and i i that maybe makes me a very shallow and delusional person but <laughs> but fair enough um there is sort of the intrusion of, of fantasy into reality in a in a low level way like that, yeah. not, not saying, not in the sense of I could go to this diner and be discovered and be made into a matinee idol, but I'm seeing 
there's there's a character actor in one of your stories that gets called out. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh. Right. I'm seeing M. Emmett Walsh around. That's the kind of intrusion of fantasy into reality, or maybe the welcome intrusion you get here, isn't it? I can show you on my phone. M. Emmett Walsh. Oh boy. Was in front of me at the post office last week. Here, I'll show you. So you can just. This will be live. This will be. Um... He's pulling up a picture <laughs> really? I hope is going to be a, a recognizable M. Emmett Walsh. I mean, I know M. Emmett Walsh mainly as the. Uh, was he a cop in Blood Simple? Yeah. In the early Coen Brothers movie? There he is at the post office in Culver City. Oh, I, could, I could believe that's him. <laughs> yeah. he, did, he lives over there in the Culver, you think? Yeah, and I've seen him before. I saw him in Smart and Final. That's oh, actually I, I mentioned in the story. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there is those kind of weird intersections. Um, uh, I mean, there's, a, the, there's the horrid aspect of Hollywood that right. I avoid at all costs. But um, that type of stuff... I, I find fun, you know, it's, um, you know, you get that sense, uh, for me, like being in LA is, I feel like I'm like anyone who's come from any other part of the country. Um, it, it's always that kind of gold rush mentality. There's like, you came here for something. There's something you're chasing. Nobody you know? comes to Los Angeles to go down in the world. Exactly. You know, um, and, you know, I grew up in, I was, you were born in Long Beach and grew up for the most part in, in Orange, California. And for me, L.A. and Hollywood, that all existed in my imagination as like Oz, you know, and, right. and I still feel that way. You know, um, I've definitely become more grounded in kind of just the daily aspects of Southern California or L.A. proper. And, you know, I love those aspects um, as well. So I think of M. Emmett Walsh and he's you wouldn't call him a movie star, but. You, you recognize him. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Not just, you know, if we were movie obsessives, of course we would know everything about him. But people know his face, I would guess. They'd have the double take, I would, I would think. And, you know, he's, you look at his career, you see a hardworking actor, though not a super, super celebrity. Would you say that the characters in Middlemen of various professions are in some sense M Emmett Walsh's of whatever they do? Sort of M Emmett Walsh's of life? They're hanging in there and they're doing their best. But they wouldn't they don't consider themselves huge, yeah, very much so. I mean, um, <laughs> I don't think any of the characters are matinee idol types, you know, and I think uh part of the progress of the book is that that realization that they're that they're not, you know that you know um they have a certain dream and uh it it kind of hits up to a reality and it I, you know, it, it can, it's, can be heartbreaking these at the time, but I think, uh, these are characters who are slowly accepting their fate as character actors in life, you know? Um, and I, you know, I definitely feel that way. And, um, and I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, um, uh, yeah, we need, we need those back, you know, you need those working character actors, um, and I've always been partial to them. It's kind of something kind of actually my, my dad has a great, uh, memory for, for actors names and in any bad old Western we're watching, like he can name those guys. And, and I always found that really poignant that he remembered them. And maybe it's because some part of him felt like he has a closer kinship to those dudes than mm. Gary Cooper, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. So, and I guess those are the type of, of, of people um, that I'm, I am kind of drawn to. Um, no, I guess like, you know, right in the middle, I suppose. So, I, I think of the 
I forget if it was in the book, but it was in the movie version of, of Fight Club. There's this Brad Pitt monologue about how the whole generation that woke up and found themselves in adulthood in the late 90s were raised to believe that they'd all be celebrities and now are seething with resentment. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but you did say just now this sense that your characters, the young ones, start off with certain dreams mm -hmm. and have to sort of have those chiseled away. You also draw some contrast between these younger characters and their parents, the sort of working class parental generation. Do you think the parents' generation had to go through that same process, or did they were they building up from nothing rather than getting chiseled down from from their imagination, imaginary something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'll just in terms of uh, you know my own family, you know, um, you know, neither my parents went to college and. Um, you know, they came from kind of solid houses and, you know, I look at a, someone like my dad, he's the most kind of just selfless, happy, go lucky guy. And here's a kid who was like, at, uh, you know, 19 got plucked off a beach and sent to Vietnam. And, you know, he, he's, it's never something he's complained about. It's just right. something he did. And when he got back, all he wanted was a job. He just, he wanted a job and a, and a family. And like, I don't think... Um, I'm reminded of a father in the middleman who says, I just wanted to work in a place with air conditioning. Exactly. Um, I think his, the things he dreamed about were, they were, well, he had probably more selfless dreams, to be honest. Like, um, and, um, and he and my mom were able to, you know, get a house and raise me and my sisters. And I think we, we were raised with, um, I think there was an expectation to to move up somehow like um you know everyone like i think about everyone who lived on my street which was a very, yeah, nice street ranch houses and lawns and um but like it was construction workers electricians pool guys mm -hmm. and you know but all their all their kids were like the kids were going the generation going to college mm -hmm. and kind of expecting to do something more mm -hmm. And, um, I remember in college, I always had some vague notion that I would go to law school because that seemed to be like the thing to do. Mm. And you envisioned the sort of ladder stairway and that yeah. pointed to law school. Yeah. I mean, I had these kind of practical things that I thought I should be doing alongside the more dreamy aspects, like wanting to write comedy and, right. and stuff like that. So I always assumed like, oh, I, I just go to law school at some point and I basically <laughs> have, have almost taken the LSAT like a hundred times. It just still hasn't happened. It may happen. It maybe, maybe it's something You're right up to the end of the plank and then nope. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I definitely feel that, uh, my dad and maybe his generation, um, and specific to his circumstances, like mm. anything not getting blown up in a jungle in Southeast Asia is kind of like, Hey, it's, right. it's pretty good. That's so, his baseline yeah. is, is in the shit as they yeah. say. So, um, and my mom was kind of the same way. I mean, they wanted, you know, pretty simple things and, um, they, they wanted their kids to go to Catholic school. And that was like the big, that's what they were working for to be able to pay tuition, you know, to Catholic schools. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I came of age, uh, in the nineties and, yeah, I, I think I there was kind of some expectation where like, something great was going to happen at some point, you know, and and I um, 
And I just never quite knew how to, what it was or how I do it. And I had all these vague notions and, um, maybe some sense that I deserve something that mm -hmm. I clearly didn't, you know? And I, I think that's probably typical of a lot of people, you know, I'm 36 and I think it's probably typical. And then, I don't know, you kind of go through your twenties and you get your, you know, get your ass handed to you a few <laughs> times and you fail and you fuck up and, um, you know, when I started writing these stories, like I had kind of stopped imagining myself as like being a published writer. And like, it was more, more, these are the stories I have. I'm going to, I want to do it for myself. And it was, and there was some, there's some lesson in there that you can't, unless if someone had told me to think like that, I it would have never happened. It just, it had to have happened on its own. So mm. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I feel really lucky with hap with what happened with the book and getting it published, but, um, the reason I finished the book, I think is because I just was writing those stories to make some sense of my life on my own terms, mm. you know? Um, I think because I had gotten to the other end of the type of mentality, you know, you met, you were talking about. So, right. You know, these characters, the younger characters in your book, they're in their various points in their twenties and thirties. And I can't help but compare them to my own peer group today who are in their late 20s early 30s and with us it's more like it seems like we i don't know if we feel like we deserve things but it's almost even worse because we have first of all hopelessness about certain things like uh home ownership probably off the table Re reproduction off the table uh jobs like previous generations had off the table but if we were offered those jobs we would probably wouldn't do them it's we we say well we certainly we're not going to we've relinquished so many perks of middle class american life in the 20th century but we're definitely not going to be working like it's <laughs> same thing, you know do, do you get the sense of what i mean like is that is that an element of the characters of this sort of age cohort of the younger characters in your story as well i mean they're they're various ages mm -hmm. they seem i were i'm I think we're probably less than 10 years apart in age and the some of the characters fall between us in terms of yeah. the time period they occupy. I feel like like post-war America, you know, you have this prosperity and uh you know, you have your square suburban world and in the movies and the films like the heroes is always the person who kind of goes against that or is the most more sympathetic character who kind of you know, I don't want this square nine to five job. You know, I don't want this light. I'm, you know, you know, you have the beats, you have oh, the counterculture and, and everything. And, and I think that's been the narrative all through, like till now, I mean, it's something like American beauty or something, which, um, a movie I don't really care for, but, yes. but the, the kind of the, the whole Kevin Sp Spacey's character, just like, you know, this is all a sham, this world of, I have to go to this job. I have to raise this family. And I feel like that that's over mm. anyone complaining about their job, having a job in America, you, you, we don't need to listen to, you know, and I feel like, I feel like the, if the kind of like the crazy dream of life in America was to escape the square suburban world, um, the dream now is to find a way back in ah, I see. you but know no smoke without fire i mean are we forgetting something by ignoring or or turning away from the lessons of a richard yates or, or whoever who who seemed genuinely horrified by the squareness they saw yeah i mean yates um 
the other guy I would put uh, Evan S. Canal in the bridge novels, which are amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they they saw that stuff really early on. Um, and you have someone like Cheever who writes, you know, beautifully about the subs, uh, suburbs and kind of that kind of prosperous post-war world, um, which I think Mad Men draws on mm. immensely from Cheever. And um, I assume all those writers have read a lot of Cheever. But um, in any case, but Cheever was an outsider to that world. I mean, he kind of grew up rough and poor and like he kind of he loved that. Like he, he wrote, uh, I, I think he indicts that world, but I also think he finds it beautiful and alluring. And I think I, you know, um, you know, I, that kind of makes more sense to me. I feel like I, in my dream of dreams, I'm just trying to get back to like what I knew as a kid, mm. you know what I mean? Like, I mean, a house in Southern California, it just seems like, fucking impossible you know and um and you know i think the things i the track i've been on in my life has been kind of uh i've always imagined a conventional future for myself but everything i've done in my life has been to kind of right. run away from it so it's definitely a kind of like this mixed this mixed uh or um fraught way of looking at things the, um, the vision was always conventional the reality was never conventional exactly yeah um whether i you know i've i've had several careers and if i had stuck with any of them i probably could have had those things but whatever for whatever reason i always kind of just wanted to escape in some way right. you know so so both those impulses are are familiar to me and you know and i don't know if there's any any good answer to them you mentioned that you yourself had a sales job where you were on the freeway for six hours a day or what have you and there's a similar job held by a character in middleman uh, yeah. working as a plumbing sales rep driving all day long and yeah. it's yeah i mean you make you make in the story you make that a profession that i want to learn more about you know in the context of the story yeah. But at the same time, if I step out of it and think to myself, someone somewhere is driving seven hours a day every day to sell plumbing supplies. I almost can't think about the sentence. It's like it has too many grim implications. I have to yeah. force it out of my mind. <laughs> Reading the story, I'm fine with it. Then I step back and think this exists as a thing that people spend most of their waking hours doing. It's like just try not to think about it. Do, have, you, have you had, I mean, you held that kind of a job, I yeah. suppose, but yeah. that divide, is that familiar to you? You know, that story, um, basically, I screwed up my life enough to the point where I had no other options. So I took a job with the company my dad works for. I I did that for two years, driving seven hours a day, making sales calls, getting my, you know, teeth kicked in and also having some good moments, but mostly just being in a constant level of stress because you're it's sales. You have to. It, so two years, I felt like I aged like a century. My father has done that for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so that is what is totally incomprehensible to me. But the thing is, you know, you stick with a career, you get good at it. Mm. You get to know people and all those stresses kind of, they take different shape. But um, yeah, I mean, I would meet 
every day I'd meet these guys who were like lifers in that industry and guys who their whole life depended on how well they could remember parts numbers, like right. these guys in the warehouses. And like, they have this little bit of knowledge and know how that they kind of built a life around. And it's, mm. especially something like plumbing, no one dreams of growing up to working in plumbing, whether it's actually, you know, being an artisan and, or uh, on the sales business, you know, business industrial side of it, but it's kind of where people end up. But, and actually that's what I loved about it. Cause you, the people you, you meet, they had a certain level of humility to them that I don't think you would find in finance or, sure. or to, to name one example. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, I had so much respect for those, for those guys. And, um, you know, I had my own kind of visions and dreams and stuff, but I don't, I've never thought they were any more or valid or noble than any other. So I, you know, I meet these like 25 year old plumbers who like, you know, they're all tatted up and wearing Dickies and, and they're making 70 grand a year and they have like two kids and they're 25, you know, and, right. they, and they got a house out in uh, Redlands, you know? So, um, I don't know that, that world, I mean, it was, um, I guess the crazy part of it was always imagining like what my dad, like what his world was like. And then I think it was a rare gift that I actually got to see it and see how hard he worked, how hard all those people work, how scary it can be. And also how much fun it can be, you know, um, like a couple of the, the things depicted in that, in the, the couple of stories about plumbing, there's like a golf tournament and there's a, a luau, like those were, I went to yes. those things, you know, and they oh, were, the luau was real. Yeah. The luau on the Los Angeles river. Yeah. <laughs> to go to go behind the scenes, the the luau was not. I I moved it for dramatic purposes, but I went to a luau. the right choice. Yeah, so <laughs> the actual luau was in the Inland Empire, if you, yeah. but um, even better in yeah. a way. Yeah, in a way. So, um, so yeah, I I find, um, I when I was in the middle of it, I never considered writing about it. I just who in their right mind would want to read about plumbing salesmen, you know, and um. <laughs> And then at some point I kind of, I just, something in, I had been working on stuff that was more historical and required, <clears throat> excuse me, required research. And I just got tired of it. And I, I just came to a point in my life where I was like, I need to just write about my own life. Mm -hmm. And uh, friends would tell me, like, I'd go on the weekends, I'd see friends and have beers and I'd tell some story from my week my sales job. And then like, why don't you write about that? You know? And it's really the dumbest, most simple thing you can do, but it took me a long time to actually understand what it means. And, um, and to understand that when you're writing a story about a job, it's the job is, it, there has to be something else going on, you know, and you have to have all the details, right. And I was able to do that without thinking. Cause I just, I just knew it, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. So, in the end, I owe quite a bit to that job because any luck I've had as a writer has come out of these right. <laughs> plumbing stories. <laughs> you know, you, I don't want to leave plumbing behind yeah. uh, yet because you mentioned the 25-year-old plumber yeah. who is pulling down money. He's got a family. That's kind of an archetype, at least in modern life. Well, for me anyway, because you always, you know, in high school, you do see that you dimly see the path ahead like you could go to college yeah. or you could get professional right away in one of these you know, in a trade and you could be 
they always say pulling, you know, it could be pulling down uh, X amount of money that you won't see. You'll maybe never see if you don't play your cards right with a college path. And I, you know, I, I go to go on Facebook and I see uh, photos that these guys I used to know in high school up in the Seattle suburb where I grew up, who stayed there, who went into uh, contracting or what have you. And it's like, I see pictures of their wives, their houses, their kids, their cars. And I'd be like, you're, you're only 28 like me. That's not possible. That's not po- like, what ha- did you, did you get a MacArthur fellowship? Like how, what, what happened? How did you, what? I mean, I yeah. really don't even, I can, I can hardly form a question that like encapsulates my mystification at that. And at some point I just think they're a different breed than you. Like they went one way, you went the other way. It could not have been otherwise. And I wonder writing the stories in middlemen, the stories so tied up in work and, the, and working class and, and all that, and the sort of generational divide. Do you think that is illusory, that idea that these are just two different kinds of people doing two different kinds of things and you can't cross the paths for very long? You can take some time on one side or the other, but these are separate streams. Like I said, like the street I grew up on had a lot of people who worked in the trades and, um, or, you know, something like truck driving or, or whatever. And, um, my 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 memory of of is like you know the last thing my dad ever wanted for me was to do what he did you know and i i had that sense or like you're all expected to do something else and and to do what your father did was a step back you know um you know and i think when i when i got took the job in plumbing and um it was at a it was at a a difficult juncture in my life. You know, my, uh, my mom had passed away and I was, I was broke at loose ends. I had a really weird resume and I had no, and, and so when I started, I really, I had high hopes. Like I was like, I'm actually gonna be able to make pretty good money for the first time in my life. I can actually I'll get my own apartment. And, and I did all those things, you know? Um, but I, there was something else chasing after me. And like, I, and it was mainly that I wanted to write, you know, I hadn't written for a few years, but that was still gnawing at me, you know? And I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if there, what would separate, you know, I met a lot of sales reps, my age, um, some had gone to college, some hadn't, you know, and those guys just seemed settled in, in a way that I just kind of, at some point realized I wasn't going to be. Right. You, you never know? stopped chafing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I know the thing about I've never I've never associated kind of like intelligence with education and um I you know the I look at someone like my dad he's incredibly sm- smart and has and he has this kind of like good artistic eye in a way you know um and he's also kind of just, he's, there's like a zero ounce of pretension in him. You know what I mean? And, um, so I don't know, like I, I never wanted to be like, um, uh, like go to New York and be among the literati or something like that. I mean, that's as horrible a thought to me as, you know, you know, digging ditches for the rest of my life, you know, it's poisonous for a writer as (laughs) digging ditches the rest of your life. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that, you know it's a funny i met a guy you know i was i was who was he forget he 
we worked for a wholesaler and we like we had lunch and this was something somewhere like way out in like i don't know fontana or something and um we're talking about the move we ended up talking about movies and you know and he was like yeah i kind of had an idea for a screenplay like and we we're just like we're two plumbing sales reps having lunch and somewhere in the inland empire but i don't know and like he kind of had that that little bit of like why not you know i you know so I think that that happens in all many in different forms. Like maybe all those guys I thought were settled in weren't, you know? And, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, my, my respect and the people I care about are the people who can, can kind of maintain a career. Um, I, cause I haven't been able to do it. So those are the people I, I, and I'm hoping that the career I can maintain is a, as, as a writer, but that re- that remains to be seen. Yeah, we'll see it what always happens. remains to be seen yeah. in anyone's case. But I think of that I have a screenplay idea moment from an unexpected source. Yeah. And I think to the story in Middlemen where uh, one of your your younger characters, your younger slash impoverished characters drives to Riverside on his spare tire and then a spare that replaces his spare tire that shreds and it drags his car there to, to meet with a, his rich uncle who got rich in the irrigation business in Riverside. And, you know, he's, he's one of these loaded types who's writing checks to the guy's mom and and all that. He's throwing his money around a bit. Mm-hmm. And we've all met types like that, I think, who – these people who got wealthy in – I don't want to say unappealing, but occup- in occupations and fields, you're just never sure, like, how did you – how does that happen? You know, yeah. Riverside Irrigation. And I, I always think about those people and – yeah, this, the question, I don't mean it to sound disdainful. It might come out that way. I mean it in good faith and li- as literally as possible. I think about these guys. What is driving them exactly? Like what's, I know the money. I know there's money. But what's keeping them going forward to get that wealthy at irrigation in Riverside or at, at becoming a plumbing fixture mogul? I, I honestly don't know where the fire is coming from. You know, I mean, it's, it's like uh, maybe maybe this is another generational thing. I don't know. What did you, if you had those moments, you know, I look at like my, my mom's side of the family is all Boston Irish and like, you know, grew up, uh, kind of in the slums in Boston. And, um, and I think of my grandfather, like a guy who didn't, uh, he didn't go to school past age 10. And there's like, you know, whole, section of his life that I don't really know where he was in the, like the thirties, <laughs> like the depression. I, I, you know, there's, there's unaccounted for years yes. and I have no idea, but he became a welder and, um, you know, he, his sons, um, uh, well, one was killed in Vietnam and one kind of ended up, uh, working in irrigation, you know what I mean? And like, and I think there is this kind of, um, uh, ancestral memory of poverty that is, is a driving force and, um, you want to escape it and you, I don't know. Um, my grandfather, when he's living in Boston, you know, he was kind of this hellion and, um, his mom called up Joe Kennedy, who was like a family friend to get him a job at the, at the post office, which ended up working out. But like that kind of like, that's another way these worlds work is it's, it's, it's very, you have nepotism, you have just kind of like people you, that's why people, you get into the trades, you know, you, you have a brother or a father who can get you in there and then you kind of find your way. Um, 
And I think there's no thought about what they're actually doing. Uh, I mean, like dude working in irrigation, um, uh, it's, it could be any, you know, that's just where he ended up and that's, but he's figured out a way to make money. He has these connections. Um, and he's kind of a name. He made a name for himself. And, um, but the driving, yeah, the driving force, at least so I could see in like, from my own experience is, is to escape the stories that they heard they think are still coming after them. Oh, I see. You know, that, you know, that past is, is, is coming after you, mm. you know, and you have to accumulate as much money as you can to keep it at bay, right. you know? And, um, uh, I'm, I think I'm as prey to that mentality as anyone, you know? Um, uh, if you have a family and stuff, maybe some of that even gets intensified or, or, or whatever. But, um, yeah, it has. I think it has less to do. The drive comes less to do with what they're actually doing, the business they're in, than um, trying to get to this certain place. You know, um, uh, I know I reference you know the middle and this idea of purgatory and stuff. And I live over in Culver City, and I live by the Baldwin Hills. And if you go there in the evening, it's really beautiful. Actually, there's just um, you know, these sloping roads that go up this hill and this huge staircase. And you just like everyone, like this very incredible cross section. People come there every day to like go, go up the steps and like kind of right. punish themselves yes. and, and walk up this hill. And they're just trying to get to the top. And it, it, it to me, it is, it is the slopes of purgatory that Dante, <laughs> you know, it, and that's, that's what it feels like. You, you're moving towards some, some plateau where you like, once I get there, it'll all stop, but, right. but it doesn't, <laughs> it never stops. It, it, it makes me think again about me and my peers. And for so many of us, if it's, it's like, we do not have those stories chasing us. The stories have long since faded of poverty generations behind. So we're like, it's all about not having to work a quote unquote real job. And, uh, Oh, is, is eviction looming? Bring it on. Fine. Yeah. Like that's literally <laughs> the, the attitude. Do your younger characters have any of that in them or are they all, are they all close enough to ancestral poverty that nobody is shrugging in the face of uh, getting thrown on the street? Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, um, I feel like the, these characters come out of a context that wasn't as dire as their parents or their grandparents. And I think probably have more of a sense of entitlement and, um, and kind of in the first story, um, it's kind of about this kid playing high school basketball, but there's this whole sub story about basically his family's collapsing right. and he's too caught up in his own adolescent dreams to really, I, my hope is that the reader sees it if, if the protagonist doesn't. And, um, I don't think he realizes how on the edge he and his family is. Um, and I kind of know this from my family, like your parents, you know, pre protect you from that. And you, you know, you kind of like, when I think of all the stuff that I have with my family, I can go back and kind of piece things together. Right. But my parents wanted to keep the, the horror that was kind of chasing them. They wanted to keep us away from it, you know? Right. And, um, and I, so I think these characters <clears throat> have some vague sense of, um, their, their circumstances, but also they don't appreciate it enough and 
Um, they're also, uh, I think, and I think this is a very autobiographical element to them. Um, they're lazy. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, um, I mean, they, they do work. They don't mind work, but like the way they operate in life is totally kind of lazy and irrational. Mm. And a what does it mean to be lazy? I guess yeah. we should maybe lay that out. What laziness manifests itself? How in these characters? Um, maybe lazy is maybe a, a better term is dreamy. Like I'll just sit on this couch for a few hours and think about how great things will be, <laughs> you know, eventually. Right. And, um, I do probably do that every day. And, uh, so they, I think they just don't know how to get from where they are to whatever they're mm. dreaming about. And, um, and I know that feeling incredibly well, you know, like in, in college, like, you know, I wanted to, you know, if I could have like written my own ticket, I would, I want to write for the Simpsons, but like, yeah. you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I don't like, I don't, I literally know no one who could, how would I, how would you even do that? It, I might as well, like, um, it seemed like impossible and like, and I would think about it, all, but I, how would, I didn't know how to do it. And I think I was a little bit. If I had, if I was maybe less timid or something, you know, maybe I could have figured something out. Um, mm. I also never actually sat down and wrote a Simpsons script. You know, like <laughs> I was right. just, I just thought I should be given that job. I see. Because I watched it a lot <laughs> and got all the jokes. I'm most. very familiar with the canon. <laughs> yeah. I know all the, I, I know all the, uh, the character model sheets. I could envision them walking through Springfield. I'm, I got this. Right. Yeah. I'm, it's the only language other than English I'm fluent in. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, and I think one reason I ended up kind of writing fiction is because it is just something you can do on your own at no cost. And I think that is, in, in my mind, that makes it the the best or the most, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. One of the French New Wave filmmakers had some quote about, like, until film is the means of production or is or whatever is like as affordable as a pen it won't be a true art form and, and we're probably getting pretty close to that yeah, you know yeah. it is becoming incredibly more uh i don't know democratic or whatever but um <laughs> you describe so many of these younger characters and middlemen as you know, driving their crappy cars as we've alluded to and dressing badly and and just being shambles why how did they get so shambolic? I guess that's what I'm most curious about. Um, in, in such a short time as well. They're, you know, 30 years old. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, uh, I look in the mirror every day and, and, a, and ask myself that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that maybe that goes down to uh, Flannery O'Connor's mystery of personality. Like, um, I don't know. From my own perspective, I, I'm, I can't walk into a mall or any type of clothing store without going into a kind of weird panic. And I literally never buy clothes and I don't know why. And it's some weird thing. I don't know. I, well, I went to Catholic school for 16 years and we got to wear a uniform and I love that. I love, <laughs> I love not having to make any decisions about couture sure. and, uh, um, yeah. And there's, as far as like the automobiles, that is, you know, I think that's a very, you know, maybe in like heavy driving places like Southern California or Texas or something like, I always felt like, um, I remember driving to school in high school. I had my grandmother died and I got her 85 Ford tempo and, um, she 
smoked so much the oh. windows were yellow it was incredible and uh and i yeah i was working at kmart driving my four tempo that barely worked and i would pick up my friends and we you know drive to school and i just remember the the essential feeling was like the gas gauge hovering around empty and the heat gauge hovering around hot like like it is all going to collapse at any second right. you have one eye on each of them just not on the road naturally right. and this is how this is how uh, some of us live i suppose during certain hopefully just our 20s but who knows yeah <laughs> or beyond um but that feeling that like i have that feeling of if i can just get the car there right i'll worry about what comes next like i just need to get to school today and then like you get out of school and you're like oh yeah i have to get back in that death trap of a car and try and make it home or to work and yeah that that has always carried on that kind of like i feel like the history of my family could be written through um all our car breakdowns you know it's just like there's just no escape um right so yeah that kind of i think shambolic is a really good word to describe it um you're kind of just doing your best. You probably could be doing more, but like, you know, TV's on, you know, so <laughs> I'm going to enjoy life a little bit and not figure out a way to fix my car that is never going to be fixed. Right, so, right. yeah. The whole sense of Southern California or Los Angeles proper being a, a heavy driving place, it still obtains, but less so every year, especially in, in the 21st century. And we mentioned before the smog, how in, when you were growing up, I'm sure there were plenty of days you were, I mean, in Long Beach, you're not really going to see downtown anyway, yeah. but we're close to downtown. You couldn't see downtown. Yeah. Couldn't see downtown from downtown. There, There's a Los Angeles that I read about in books set in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, that seems to rapidly be growing less comparable to the Los Angeles of today. Yeah. Do you get that sense that this, that the, the city itself has become considerably different since, since you were growing up or is that more, is that more of a sense the world has about it? And that from the inside, it's kind of the same as it's always been. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, that's a good question. I mean, I, I feel like, I still feel like Southern California has is the place where people want to come to, whether, you know, um, you know, I grew up with a lot of kids who were, you know, second generation, their parents from Mexico or Central America. And, you know, like they're like, they didn't want their kids to speak Spanish, you know right. what I mean? And like, they, they were here, you're, you know, and, and that's still, I think that is, that's the defining story of Southern California right now is, is, um, you know, those new generations coming in usually from Mexico and Central America. And, um, and that's, that's, that's the future. And, um, you know, um, but I don't feel, I don't think that is any different from at any other point in time. It's just this circumstances and this is the immigrant, you know, the group, coming in now is no different than you know when the irish are coming into new york and stuff like that or or wherever um so i don't i don't feel any particular um difference you know i feel like um i don't know i i'm really hopeful i like i feel like la is the place to be you know i, I can kind of say that in time of like a cult cultural context as far as film and books and comedy and all that yeah. stuff but I still feel like the future is kind of getting written here. 
that makes it kind of a hell on earth in some ways. <laughs> really? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's like a crucible. Like, mm. there's winners and losers, and um, it's fascinating to watch. And um, you know, I, you know, I, I look, um, you know, the suburbs of Southern California are, were kind of underwritten by um, the aerospace industry in, in, in a lot of ways. And that's, I feel like that world is kind of, I mean, it's still there, but it's a lot of it has changed and gone away. And so I don't know there's kind of these new, I think LA is still trying to figure out itself. I think it is at some sort of, of, of weird cr generational crossroads. Um, and we now have, you mentioned the, the immigrants from Mexico and Central America who've been yeah. coming here a long time, but we now have generations descended from them who are pissed because they didn't get to learn Spanish growing up yeah. to say to their grandparents, why didn't you teach my mom and dad Spanish? Cause now I don't know it. And now in Los Angeles, it would be really nice to know Spanish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like things have sort of come back around on themselves. There were Los Angeles had dreams in the mid 20th century and whether or not those are thought to have panned out, the situation is now, I mean, it's a different playing field now, is it not? I think so. I don't know. I think there's still like definitely some entrenched class, you know, class things as always. Um, but I can, I would only hope that it's for me, like, you know, when I see like going out in the inland empire and stuff, I mean, that's kind of, um, where things are happening in a sense, you know, as far as the changing face of neighborhoods and, um, you know, um, that's where the middle class is kind of ending up the kind of more, a more mixed middle class. Um, the, the middle class frontier is over there in I, the Inland Empire. So. Um, like, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of the black families I know out there, like, you know, that's where they, wanted to move to, you know, get a house out in Victorville and the debt you can afford, you know, and, um, my, you know, I have cousins and stuff out there who, you know, the, I don't know. It, they're not, they don't look at Southern California as, as kind of like the gold rush place where you get rich. It's like, kind of, I can actually get, you know, you know, my cousins like put herself through nursing school and like, you know, um, how much does the question of, when you get out there to Victorville or, or wherever and you, you have a house, how much does the question of what do I do now intrigue you as, as, as a writer or as just a person? You know, it always seems like that would become, it always seems like that would start dominating uh, your, your psyche as soon as you get the house out there on, on the fringes of the middle-class frontier, just the whole, what now, like, what do I, where, I guess I can't really walk anywhere. I mean, like, what, what do I do? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's pretty surreal. Um, there is a, a great novel that came out uh, about three years ago called Model Home by Eric Puckner, which is just brilliant. It's, I feel like it's what um, it's one of the best domestic novels of the last 10 years. And it kind of it's kind of all about that. And um, it's much of it is set out in, in those places, kind of the high desert. And then my boss, when I had my sales job, I had a lot of accounts out there and he, he referred to it as the edge oh, oh, oh. and um you know i go out to these places like kind of these new track houses are being built and it's literally a cul-de-sac uh you, you drive into a cul-de-sac and there's a wall and on the other side of the wall is a vast wasteland <laughs> i mean with, with tumbleweed blowing and I, backyard wasteland yeah, exactly and i think it's just goes to show you there's 
the there's no high enough premium you can place on in America on owning a home, <laughs> right? You know, and no setting is too terrible yeah. if it's your home. And I think you know, it, um, I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to live out there, but like, I don't begrudge anyone who who's you know um, trying to find a find a house, you know, in a, in a safe neighborhood. I mean, I, I think that's the thing. It's like that's the we can kind of you know, for families coming from South LA or East LA, you know, who are getting jobs in the trades out there, it's like, this is kind of a fresh start. And that makes a lot of sense to me, you know? Um, yeah, but those neighborhoods are, it's, it's a lunar landscape. It's, it's <laughs> surreal. Um, but you know what? Uh, I wonder, you know, what was, uh, what did Orange County look like in 1950? You know, like, I mean, it was orange groves and, and now it, we kind of have all that's gone and it just feels like it's always been there, but it hasn't. And so who knows what the desert's going to look like in 50 years? I mean, it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> right. I mean, Orange County has some good ramen shops now and such, you know, it's, it's come a long way. But I mean, is this are these lunar desert neighborhoods, the, the places where the new Richard Yatesian suburban narratives are to be written? I mean, are they emerging from do, do you see them emerging from those sorts of uh, middle class frontiers? We've been saying Um I think so. You know, um, you know, uh, another, uh, book I read recently, um, called, uh, it's by Dana Johnson called elsewhere, California. And, um, it's set, you know, I think in the eighties and, but it's, it's set in South LA and, and, um, uh, the high desert and she kind of captures it that really, really well. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful book. And, uh, yeah, I mean that's I think that's what I mean. Like um Orange County has more of an entrenched, you know, I mean South Orange County is one of the richest enclaves in the world and um you know whereas you get out once you get past your Belinda on the 91 and you're into Cor Corona and Riverside and south to Temecula and out out there like it's kind of more open territory, you know what I mean? I I feel like there's less entrenched yeah, more opportunities. And, you know, so the, like the, you know, 30 years ago, it was like the, the uncle character in the story who like, that's where the money was. Cause that's where they were building houses, you know? And, um, I remember a story that, or, or something my grandfather said was relayed to me by, by my uncle. When they, they moved from Boston out to California, my uncle came out here first and, and my grandfather came to visit and this was in the sixties, like early sixties or mid sixties. And, um, my grandpa just was like looking around LA, like, and he, he said, a guy could make a million dollars just painting doors out here. You know what I mean? Like there was, there seemed to be like so much work, you know, um, whether it's building houses and stuff. And I mean, that's what's been going on the last 30 years out in the inland empire. I mean, it's definitely cratered in some sense, but it's you still feel like that's where the growth is and stuff. Um, but the thing is about Southern California, I, I feel very loyal, you know, loyal to it. And I think I know it pretty well, but there are vast stretches. It's so big. Like I could, I could not tell you what's going on in Ventura. I've literally, I've spent no time there. I have no idea. Like I've spent very little time in the San Gabriel Valley, you know, like, you know, so, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hoping you know, as far as like LA literature and stuff in a way of documenting it, you know, um, like a couple of writers I've mentioned, like Eric Puckner and Dana Johnson, 
Victoria Patterson, she writes about South Orange County in a really great way. And um, there's a collection called um, Every Night is Ladies' Night by a guy named uh, Michael Ime uh, Bracera, I think. And uh, that's kind of set in uh, San Gabriel Valley. And it's great. And then, like, I, I love that stuff, you know. Um, so I think, like, uh, those those places on the edges are, are kind of more interesting. I feel like the cities have kind of filled up with the cool, hip, sophisticated people and like the freaks of, you know, you know, not the freaks, but the people who are kind of like whose stories might be. I think the stories that the kind of stories that the the hip folks downtown wish want to tell are actually happening out in the suburbs yeah. now. So I don't know. I'm just talking out my ass. I have sure, no idea. Well, that's yeah. what we encourage. Yeah. And, and finally, you mentioned having spent some time in, in Northern California yourself yeah. as well. And there's a story in here uh, that goes between it's, it's mainly in San Francisco and right. Berkeley, but it all has, it has a bit where a character goes yeah. down to Los Angeles for a little while. What, uh, what do you think about this? I mean, the divide that people talk about in California is North South. You've got Northern yeah. California and Southern California, San Francisco and Los Angeles. The real divide seems to me to be East West. You've got the West side with, San Francisco and Los Angeles yeah. and the East where these lunar landscapes are, where the middle-class frontier is. I mean, yeah. does that hold any water to you that the real distinction being East West? Uh, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there is, there is a North South divide, but I think there, <laughs> it's the, the distinctions are smaller. Narcissism I, of minor differences. That's, that ex was exactly the, uh, or uh, for term I was looking for. Yeah. East West. I mean, I, I, you know, I've heard like kind of like, like Riverside or like, inland is kind of, that's the kind of the red state of Southern California, you know, and it's kind of maybe more conservative or, um, yeah, I can feel it, but it's like, it's more, it's more rural. You, it's more affordable, like coastal property. It, it, it um, you know, uh, if you ever, if you're at the beach, like surfing, of the whitest sports surfing is up there, you know what I mean? And, and that's kind of generational. And, um, so yeah, I feel like there is that divide and it's the same in Northern California. Kind of once you start going East towards, towards Sacramento and basically, you know, the central Valley, you know, um, yeah, I think that's, 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 I think it's pretty true. So. I've been speaking here at Los Angeles, at the Los Angeles Review of Books, dignified with the article, the Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters here in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, with Jim Gavin, author of the Book of Stories, Middlemen, which is his debut. They're mostly Southern California stories, a little bit in Northern California as well. Jim, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.